Let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. My intention last week was to do an introduction to the book of Matthew as a whole. Uh, We had no church here because of weather, had no church in Norfolk because of weather, so I just sat in my office with a microphone and preached the message to myself off the computer monitor, but it is online if you want to be able to listen to that. Father, as we come to the beginning of this gospel, we ask that you would teach us, that you would encourage us and feed us this morning. These are words that many of us uh, skip through, pass through quickly. Uh, we, We want to get to the exciting part of the story with the birth of Jesus starting in verse 18, but you have placed such treasure here that we are not going to rush through it. We are going to look carefully this morning and, uh, and see what you have given us in it. And so we ask for your blessing as we do this together. And in Jesus' holy, precious name we pray. Amen. Verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew begins his gospel at the beginning. He literally begins at the beginning. His opening words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, looks back to the book of Genesis. There's about a dozen statements in Genesis that use the word generations. For instance, generation, or Genesis 2.4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. The word generations is the word toledot in, Greek, in Hebrew, and, and it repeats. Again, we see in Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations, the toledot of Adam. We go on in the book of Genesis to see the toledot of Noah, of the sons of Noah, of Shem, of Terah, of Ishmael, of Isaac, of Esau, and of Jacob. The thing about that word generations, toledot, is, is that it, it describes a span of time that lasts until the next toledot begins. So the toledot of the heavens and the earth lasts until the toledot of Noah begins, or uh, of Adam in five, and then the toledot of Adam lasts until the toledot of Noah in chapter six. You see how that goes. So Matthew begins with the generations of Jesus Christ. It's, it's exactly the same phrasing. At first glance, you might think that Matthew is just talking about Jesus' genealogy, but that's never how it's used in Genesis. It's not used in Genesis to describe somebody's past. It's used in Genesis to describe somebody's future. And that's what Matthew lays out in this book. The future of Jesus, the future of all who are in him. The genealogy is important, as as we will see. But I want you to remember as we even begin that the genealogy of Jesus is not the end of the generations. It's just the beginning. We see in verse 1 that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. As the son of David, Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the promised descendant who would occupy David's throne for all eternity. He's called son of David nine times 
in the Gospel of Matthew. The Lord made a promise to David in uh, 2 Samuel. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It might seem that this was fulfilled by Solomon, and in part it was. But Solomon was appointed before David died. And Solomon's kingdom did not go on forever. The true fulfillment of this promise is in Jesus Christ. He is the king of the Jews. Isaiah wrote about him. Jeremiah wrote about him. All the prophets wrote about him. The nations set their eyes on him, looking for the anointed one of God. Jesus is more than the king of the Jews. He's also the son of Abraham, which makes him the king of kings. Abraham was not a Jew. Abraham was not even a Hebrew. Abraham was from a, play, a city called Ur in a land called Chaldee, which we know now to be modern-day southern Iraq or Kuwait. His family, according to Joshua 24.2, were idolaters and polytheists. And Abraham was raised in that environment until we see in Genesis 12 God calling Abraham out of not just Ur of the Chaldees to Canaan, but out of idolatry into a saving relationship with the one true God. And the Lord promised Abraham that he would be blessed as well, that one of his descendants would be the cause of blessing of the entire earth. I will surely bless you. The Lord says to Abraham, and I will surely multi- multiply your offspring. And interestingly enough, in the Hebrew, that's a singular. As the stars of heaven and, and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So as, as Matthew begins in the very first sentence he says this one that i am writing about is the king of the jews and he is the king of the whole earth he is the king of kings and the lord of lords the jews look for him as their hope but this is the one the gentiles have been hoping for without knowing to look for him now the genealogy itself the names that are here are given to us in three distinct groups. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. This first section is a description of the glory of 
Jesus' genealogy. It begins with Abraham, with the patriarch of patriarchs. It ends with David, the highest king, the most noteworthy, glorious king Israel ever had. Remarkable. What happens then? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and of Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Abraham to David is a statement of glory. David to the captivity in Babylon is a statement of decline. It was because of Solomon's sin with his wives and concubines. Remember the story, 700 concubines, 300 wives, and Solomon built high places, uh, idolatrous temples and altars for his wives to worship, and God split the kingdom in half. After Solomon's death, Rehoboam became the king of Judah, Jeroboam became the, the king of Israel in the north. And it is a time of sad decline. What happens after that? Verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. From Abraham to David is glory. From David to the captivity is decline. From the captivity to the birth of Joseph is obscurity. Joseph is not just a son of David. He'll be called the son of David in the next passage by the angel. He's not just a son of David. He is in line with every one of those kings. I started to look up a little bit of of information. Um, David had 17 sons. Only one of them became king after him. Rehoboam had had 70 sons, only one of whom became king. If you follow those numbers, Solomon had hundreds of sons, but only one of them became king. Now, it's obvious if you begin with Jesus and work your way back to say, okay, it gets to David, but see, it gets to David through every single king of Judah, all of whom had other sons. There are very few people in Israel who could say, we're related to David through the exact line of every single king of Judah. There were probably many who could say we're related to David in some way. Very few this way. This would have been very impressive to the Jews of Jesus' day. It's, it's a noteworthy genealogy. 
but it includes people uh, people whose sins were unmistakable. Certainly Abraham and his lies about Sarah, David and his adultery and murder, Judah and Solomon and Rehoboam and Ahaz and others. It includes four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. I've preached several times on on these women. They were all Gentiles. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabitess related to Lot and so part of a cursed line. Bathsheba was a Hittite who was involved in David's adultery. I don't think she was as guilty as some might say. But they're, they're in Jesus' genealogy. If you were going to invent a story about the Son of God coming to earth, what kind of a genealogy would you give? Not one as sordid as this. This is National Enquirer-type level. But holiness doesn't run in the blood. If we were going to construct a genealogy, we might also start with Abraham and rise in importance until it peaked with the Lord Jesus. But that's not what happens. It peaks in the first grouping with David. And then it declines, and then it falls into obscurity. And then Jesus is born. As Isaiah says, the people who live in darkness see a great light. Those who dwell in a land of darkness, on them light has shone. Well, let's, let's think then. I know it's a little bit early perhaps for the bringing it home portion, but let, let's think about what we learned from these verses. We, we, I see three things, and you may see more. I see three things. First, it, it shows that God always always keeps his promises. God's promise to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, was made 2,000 years before Jesus was born. God's promise to David that one of your sons will be a king for eternity was made, was made 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus. And see, it's not that it took God 2,000 years to figure out how to fulfill his promise to Abraham or 1,000 years to figure out how to fulfill his promise to David. From the moment God made the promise, in fact, going to eternity past, the Lord knew exactly how he would fulfill it. He didn't actually have to say anything to either man. He didn't have to say to Abraham, in you every nation on earth will be blessed. He didn't have to say to David, one of your sons will be an eternal king. He could have just done it. But he told them so that they would have hope. And it's recorded in Scripture so that we can see the truth of what God says. So that we can see that he tells the truth. He cannot lie. And he does not lie. Why is that so important? Well, Satan successfully tempted Eve to believe that God had lied to her. We focus a lot of attention on Satan's words to Eve. Has God really said? And we should. That's an important question. 
We continue to hear that question asked today. Is that really what the Bible says? But more than doubting God's word, Adam and Eve concluded that God could and would lie to them if it suited his purposes. They decided that they could not trust him. They had to rely on their own wisdom and their new friend. And so they trusted the serpent. And they trusted their own wisdom and not their God. Ever then, ever since then, the Lord has made promises in the word and he has demonstrated his trustworthiness through his actions. He has kept his word to us. Let me show you just one example of how he has done that. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is true. He keeps this promise. I've had people say to me, it didn't work. I tried Jesus and it didn't work. But notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, try me. He says, come to me. That means we have to repent. We have to leave where we are and go to him. He says, take my yoke upon you. And that means we have to submit to his authority. And then he says, learn from me which means we have to learn what he says and believe that it's true and then act on it. Not one person who has ever repented of their sin, come to Christ, bowed to him as Lord, and committed themselves to believing and obeying him has failed to find rest. There are a lot of people who say, give me, give me Jesus in a way that I can put in my pocket and take out when I need. Oh, it doesn't work for me. I'll just get rid of it. There's not one person who has bowed their knee and bowed their heart before him, trusted him, given their life to obey him, who has found him wanting in any way. He proves himself faithful. The second thing that we see, that I see here, is that Salvation is by grace alone. If you ever need proof that salvation doesn't run in the family, this genealogy should prove it. Righteous David brought forth unrighteous Solomon. You know, in, in, in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, as these kings die, as they come to the end of their lives, the scripture gives a grade. It, it says he did, every, he did what his father David did, but not entirely. That's a, that's a good solid C+. He did everything his father David did. That's a good A. He did not do what his father David did. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see those grades with every single king of Israel. So righteous David brings forth unrighteous Solomon, who was the father of unrighteous Rehoboam, who was the father of unrighteous Abijah, who was the father of righteous Asaph, who was the father of righteous Jehoshaphat, who was the father of unrighteous Joram, who was the father of, un, uh, of righteous Uzziah, and, and on and on it goes. Salvation does not run in the family. It is by grace alone. 
Those who are born again, John says in John 1.13, those who are born again are born not of the blood or of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. So we can and we ought to raise our children to know the scriptures and the truth of the gospel. But here's the thing. You cannot raise your children to be a Christian. They must be made a Christian by God. By the sovereign choice of the Father and by the sufficient atonement of the Son and by the affecting working of the Holy Spirit, God has no grandchildren. Our children have to come to Christ on their own. Their heart bowed before Him. Their faith in Him. We can and must raise our children to know the Scriptures, but we cannot raise them to be Christians. That means that we must not stop evangelizing our children till we see the evidence of salvation in their lives. Till then, we should not stop trying and we should not stop praying. Because we serve a God who saves sinners. We do this seeing the confidence that God does save those who are lost. And when he saves, he completely and radically changes the heart of the sinner. The grace of God is so powerful. Romans says this, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign in righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I had never really thought about this. I've taught through Romans a couple times. I've taught through a Bible study on Romans several times. This just completely missed me. I'd always kind of assumed that where, where the act of sin increased, the grace that brings forgiveness abounded. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that in the life of a Christian where the action of sin increases, the righteous actions brought about by grace increase even more. As you live your life in Christ, as you fail and you confess and you repent, the result of that is greater practical righteousness. Forgiveness, yes, absolutely. Reconciliation to God, but holiness in you being worked out. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. And what does that mean? On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that, that it was, is within me. There's this weird idea in our time that says if it's by grace, then that means that we are utterly passive. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says the grace of God is so powerful that it changes you and that your actions become increasingly like Christ increasingly not immediately perfect that's not happening every one of you every one of you knowing the lord you know that the longer you know him the more your sin bothers you why is that is it because there's more sin no it's because there's more righteousness you've all walked in the sand does it bother you to walk in the sand? No. What if you have a piece of sand in your shoe? You've got to stop and get rid of it, don't you? The more righteous you become in Christ, the more the grace of God works in you, the more your sins stand out to you. 
the grace of God means that grace works. Grace exerts itself. Grace sweats. Grace labors. We know that God's grace has come upon someone, upon our children, because they are changed in heart and behavior. And we don't stop sharing Christ with them until we see that. We don't stop praying for the mercy of God upon them until we see that. The third thing I see in this genealogy is that God is merciful and compassionate. And that seems to be an an obvious thing. God is supposed to be merciful and compassionate. Everybody knows that. But we see it in actual practical outworking here. Philippians 2 says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. That humbling was not theoretical. It was not theological. It was actual. It meant that he took on human flesh, that he slept under our stars, that he lived under our sun, that he walked our earth. He experienced hunger. He experienced loneliness. He experienced everything that we experience without sin. Jesus was descended from sinners. Men and women both. Some of his ancestors are the most famous people in the Old Testament. Some of them are unknown outside of Matthew 1. And there's this wonderful statement in Hebrews 2.11, He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Shame is a huge issue. I'm often ashamed of myself. You might often feel shame about yourself. But Jesus isn't ashamed of me. I trust him. I bow my knee to him. I call upon him. And he's not ashamed of me. There is a a beautiful story that comes immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. A leper came to Jesus and he bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now look what happens. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I'm willing. Be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Nobody touched lepers. Lepers were to be avoided. Lepers were required, if they were in crowded places, to shout out unclean so that people could avoid them. It was not uncommon in that time if a leper came around other people for them to pick up rocks and throw them to keep him away. This man is so desperate that he comes through the crowd to Jesus and he, he falls down and he doesn't say, "If are you able to heal me? He says, I know you can. Are you willing to? And he submits. And Jesus doesn't back off and say, yes, 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 okay, okay, be healed. Jesus reaches out and touches him. See, he's unashamed. If he's unashamed of the leper's leprosy, he is not afraid to touch you in your sin, to comfort you in the grief that you experience. His genealogy is filled with men and women who are spiritual lepers. 
polluted by wickedness, infected by sin. He never recoiled in horror from his ancestry. The Spirit of God sealed it in Scripture so that we would know. And he didn't give us the highlights. He didn't give us the perfect ones. There aren't any. And in fact, he seems to spend more time on those who were more wretched. What I want you to remember this morning is that God always keeps his promises. Jesus' genealogy proves that. You can trust his word. You can trust his wisdom. You don't need some new friend. They won't help you. Trust him. I want you to remember that salvation is by grace alone. It doesn't run in the family. You can't raise your children to be Christian. You can raise them to know the gospel, and we should, to the best of our ability. But there's no family so holy that every last one will be born again, and there is no family so sinful that none of them can be saved. And I want you to remember the mercy and the kindness of our God. Jesus didn't appear on the scene after his baptism, horrified at how bad people are. He came from some of the worst stories the Old Testament has to offer. The Holy One of Israel came from a long line of sinners going back to Adam, and he came for a single purpose, to save sinners. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the gift of the Savior. Even in these early verses in Matthew, we can see your faithfulness and your love and your grace and your mercy. We can see your judgment. We can see your holiness. But we submit ourselves to the working of your grace, and we ask that you would continue to transform our hearts and our actions. If there are any who do not know you, would you please reveal that to them? Have mercy on them and save them. As we pray for those we know and love and for our children and grandchildren and, and others around us, would you give us hope in your power and in your purpose of sending your Son and in the precious name of Jesus and in his glorious name and because of our hope in him, we pray. Amen.